Well, last, last week, if you remember, we started looking at the characteristic of long-suffering. Our God is a long-suffering God, and <clears throat> we took the time to see some examples of how long-suffering He is, especially just looking at ourselves and how He is so long-suffering to us personally. And this week, we're going to be looking at then the life of Jesus and seeing how he imitated his father in being long-suffering as well. And then, by looking at Jesus, we're going to be uh, seeing how we should be living that out as well in our own lives. And to start out with, I want to share you something that maybe some people may know, some people may not know, uh, but I think it's important for us to know. Um, In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, it says this, um, the Son... Now, who's the Son again? Jesus, okay? The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things, how many things? All things were created, things in heaven and on the earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, how many things? All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Okay, looking at that verse, tell me, third service, who is the creator of the universe? Jesus is, right? Of course, it's God, but it's Jesus who's the creator, okay? Who's the creator of planet Earth? Jesus is. Who's the creator of every human being ever born? Jesus is, okay? Now, Jesus is the creator, okay? So look around this room. Everyone in this room has been created by Jesus. Look, look up at the sky, look at the, the, the trees, look at the moon, the sun, the birds, the wildlife, rivers, lakes, everything. Jesus created it. And then the day came where Jesus left his throne room in heaven. He took on the form of a man, and he was born in Bethlehem. God became man. God took on flesh. The invisible God became visible. The creator came to his creation, and he walked around on this earth as one of us. Okay, is everybody with me? Okay, now let's just put that on the shelf for just a second. I know it sounds bad. I'm asking you to put Jesus on the shelf, but let's just do that for a second. And I want to introduce someone to you. Does anybody know this guy? There you go. That's very good. This is Ralph Lauren. Okay? Now, let me give you a really quick background on Ralph. Uh, He graduated high school in the Bronx, New York. He dropped out of college to join the Army. And while working at a menswear store, he decided to try to sell ties on the side. He um, wanted to have more colorful ties than mainstream stores sold. And in his first year, he sold $500,000 worth of merchandise. So the next year, he started the brand Polo. Have you ever heard of Polo before? He started it, and now the Ralph Lauren Corporation is now a global multi-billion dollar enterprise. Ralph's personal wealth is estimated to be 7.2 billion, which makes him the 91st richest person in America. Now, honestly, I could care less about all those numbers. The main point I wanna make here is that Ralph created this company by himself. He started it. He was the creator of it. Now, let me ask you something. If Ralph Lauren were to walk into the corporate office and just show up one day out of the blue, how do you think the people would treat him? How do, how do you think people would act around him? Yeah, they'd be like, oh, this is Ralph. Oh, hey, Ralph, how you doing? This is the owner of this guy. And they'd be all like thrilled to have him there. If Ralph were to say, man, could I get a cup of coffee? What do you think people would do? 
Yeah, they'd be like 30. I'll get it, I'll get it for you, Ralph. They'd want to get him his coffee. If Ralph were to look and say, hey, I don't really like those chairs there. Any chance we could move those chairs to the other side of the room? What would people do? They would move the chairs, okay? I can imagine that wherever Ralph Lauren would show up, whether in the warehouse, the factories, the offices, wherever in the company, people would shower him with praises and want to be around him and love having him there. Why? Because he is the owner. He's the creator, the starter of the company. This is all here because of him. Now, let's just imagine for a second, let's say that Ralph were to show up to the corporate office one day, and the guy guarding the door said, oh, sorry, we're not taking anybody in here. And he's like, well, I'm Ralph Lauren. Yeah, sorry, no, locks the door. Let's say Ralph keeps convincing him, he lets him in, and he's walking there, everybody ignores him, and when he tries to you know, suggest some changes to the company, everybody just completely you know, ignores him. Finally, they say, you know what, can we get security up here and remove this man from this office? How do you think Ralph would feel about that? Not good, right? I mean, I don't know Ralph, so I don't know how he would act, but he would have every reason to blow up and fire the whole crew. Why? Because he's the owner. He's the creator of the company. All right, let's go back to the shelf and let's pull, pull Jesus off of it. <clears throat> and just to refresh your memory, who is the creator of planet Earth? Jesus is, Right? And Jesus left his throne in heaven. He came to earth as a human being and he walked this earth. And guess how the world treated him? Let me show you. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. His own did not receive him. Do you see that? The creator shows up and the creation rejects him. So let's just start there with looking at the long suffering of Jesus. I mean, that is incredible. That is the general attitude Jesus is facing while he walks on this earth. His own did not receive him. And, and you know what's crazy? That's where the verse ends. It doesn't keep going and say, it doesn't say this, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, so he went back to heaven and nuked the earth. Doesn't say that. No, he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him, and yet he accomplished what he came for. And in the course of accomplishing what he came for, he showed incredible long-suffering. Now let's look at some of those instances. I wanna show you some certain instances of how Jesus shows immense amount of long-suffering, and hopefully by the end of it you will say, wow, Jesus was probably one of the most long-suffering men to ever walk this earth. Now, let's start on the lighter side, and then we'll work up to the darker side. But let's start with his disciples. These are 12 of his closest followers. They followed him day and night. He taught them privately. He trained them. He instructed them. These guys, you have to understand, had front row seats with Jesus, the Son of God. Nobody else had such access to Jesus like them. And for three solid years, they were with Jesus, and Jesus taught them. And yet, it seems like they were the slowest learners ever. You ever notice that? I mean, they're always doing stupid things. You're just like, why would you do that? There was one time where there was a crowd of people there, and mothers were wanting to bring their little children to Jesus so that he could bless them. And the disciples were like, no, get away. Bring Jesus don't want to be around little children. Get out of here. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let them come. 
The kingdom of God is for such as these. Unless you come to, the, to God as a, as a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And the children came to him and he blessed them. And the, the disciples, guess what was like one of the number one things they argued about? Who's the greatest? These are full-grown men. And they're walking along like, well, I'm pretty sure I'm the greatest. I mean, he took me under the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't take you. But, you know, and they're arguing back and forth about who's the greatest. And Jesus goes, you know, time out. Hold on a second. Guys, understand this. If you want to be great, learn to be the servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you got to be the slave. That's greatness in the kingdom of God. And they would argue about that. In fact, two of the disciples had their mommy go talk to Jesus to try to get them to sit on either side of Jesus. They're like, Mom, can you go talk to Jesus and ask him this? So, Jesus, so she goes up to Jesus like, hey, can my sons James and John, can they sit on either side of you when you come in the kingdom? And Jesus looks at James and John and goes, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And James and John are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do it. And he goes, well, you will actually. But to sit on my left or right is not up to you. That's up to the Father. And when the other disciples heard that this mommy comes to their thing, they're like, what? They're all getting, they're even madder. And I can imagine Jesus going, they're even arguing about who's the greatest at the Last Supper. The Last Supper. Not only that, many times it seems like when you read the Gospels, you see that these disciples, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. You ever notice that? Like he'll, he'll be teaching something, and they're just like, huh? There was one time where they get in a boat, and um, it says that they only brought one loaf of bread. And Jesus said this. He goes, guys, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples are all, hmm. And they're like, is he ticked off that we only brought one loaf of bread? Is that why? And Jesus heard what they're saying. He goes, guys, seriously? He goes, how many basketfuls of bread did you collect after I fed the 5,000? They're like, 12. He's like, okay, how many did you collect after I fed the 4,000? They're like, seven. And he goes, there you go. Don't you understand? And they're like, no. I mean, that happens all the time. It's so interesting. In fact, in the, right after the Last Supper, Jesus is giving them their final teachings. These are, these are moments with his close friends, his dear friends that he has spent three years with. And he's just giving them final teachings before he gets arrested, goes to the cross, and, and he gets crucified. And he's saying things like, guys, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. And he says, guys, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas, I love Thomas, he just kind of pipes up and he goes, uh, am I the only one? We don't know the way to where you're going. We don't even know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus says these famous words. He goes, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The only way to the Father is through me. Thomas, you know the way because you know me. And then Philip pipes up. Philip goes, Lord, just show us the Father, and then that will be enough. And I can imagine Jesus just going, oh. and he says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
Now, I don't know about you, but if I just spent the last three years pouring myself into these men, teaching these men, training these men, shaping these men, leading by example to these men, and during my final moments with them, if one of them would say this, I'm not sure how I'd respond. I'd probably be like, <laughs> you guys are morons. Seriously, you're gonna ask me that? I'd probably lose my mind at this point, but not Jesus. Jesus just keeps teaching and he keeps training. He actually moves into one of the greatest prayers ever and he prays for his disciples. Jesus displays immense amount of long suffering to his fellow disciples. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about Jesus, how he shows long suffering to his fellow townspeople. There's an instance when Jesus was at his hometown of Nazareth. And it's his hometown, this is a place where he grew up in. Uh, he's with his friends that he grew up with, you know, the Thompsons and the Johnsons and the Williamsons. I mean, these are people he knew well, and they knew him well. And he was little Jesus growing up, and now he shows up at his hometown as an adult, an adult Jesus, and in the synagogue, he basically pronounces himself to be the promised Messiah, to which they are like, what are you talking about? And they, they get into an uproar, and they start shouting. One thing leads to the next, and they start driving him out of town, and they try to push him off of a cliff. They try to push Jesus, the creator, off of a cliff. They flat out reject him. And what does Jesus do? He simply escapes and walks away. Now, if I was the son of God, and some people tried to drive me off of a cliff, I could think of quite a few things I would do to these people to teach them a lesson. But not Jesus. He was long-suffering. Now, let's move on to the Pharisees. And guys, you have to understand, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, these guys were the religious leaders of the time. They were the pastors. They were the seminary graduates. They were the men who, if anyone knew God and how to, how to approach God, it would be them. And look at how they treated Jesus. In Mark chapter, chapter 3, a, a shriveled man, Jesus, is in a synagogue, synagogue, and a man with a shriveled arm walks into the synagogue. In verse 2 it says, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Here, the Son of God shows up on earth and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to be teaching others about God, they're looking for a way to accuse God. And they're sitting in the, in the synagogue like, oh, here, look, I know he's gonna try to heal this guy and it's on a Sabbath and then we can jump on him, we can pound him to the ground. He's gonna do it. We know he's gonna do it. And Jesus knows what they're talking about and he says, guys, let me... Pharisees, let me ask you a question. Is it lawful? Is it okay? Is it the right thing to do to do something good on the Sabbath? Or would it be better to do something bad on the Sabbath? Let me ask you this way. Is it better on the Sabbath to save a life? Or is it better to kill a life? Which is better, guys? And the fairies are all, Pharisees are all like, well, we can't answer that question. Because if we say it's better to save a life, he can heal that person. But if we say to kill a life, that makes us look really bad. And so they, they have no words, and Jesus reaches out, and he heals the man's hand. Now look at verse 6. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might, what? Kill 
Jesus. Now this verse always blows my mind. We are barely into chapter three of Mark and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, let me remind you once again, they're wanting to kill Jesus. And this is the story of the religious leaders for the rest of his ministry. They try to trap him in his words. They try to trick him. They try to accuse him. They try to condemn him over and over and over. And Jesus, over and over, gently responds. And with his wisdom, he confounds them. They are so befuddled by what he, you know, he says, they, they realize they can't outmaneuver him. And so they want him dead. And they try to stone him multiple times. Jesus literally is a wanted man, and he has to be careful where he goes because everywhere he goes, people are looking to kill him. The creator himself shows up on the scene, and the pastors and the teachers and the seminary professors reject him. And they not only reject him, they are a constant source of antagonism to what he's trying to do. And more than that, they're trying to kill him. And these are the religious leaders. I can tell you this, guys, if I was God and I came to earth and the people who are most supposed to be representing me, they're instead rejecting me and resisting what I'm trying to do, I'm pretty sure that I would be like, all right, boys, I'm done messing around with you. I'm done putting up with your ridiculous, childish, jealous behavior. I'm taking you down. In fact, there's a story where Jesus the detachment of soldiers is coming to arrest him. This is right before his crucifixion. And the detachment of soldiers is about 600 soldiers. Could be up to that. And so they're all got torches and they're looking for Jesus. And Jesus actually calls out to them. They're being led by Judas Iscariot. And he's like, who are you looking for? And they're like, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And it says in scripture that he replied, I am he. But in the Greek, he actually says, I am. In other words, the, the famous name of God. He goes, I am. And when he said the, that word, I am, guess what happened to the detachment of soldiers? They fall to the ground. It's like he lets out a little mini burst of power and they're all whoosh, and they hit the ground. If I were Jesus, I'd be using that little trick on all the religious leaders. <laughs> I would. Another Pharisee coming at me like, Jesus, what about the What about Oh, here comes 10 more. I'd be laying them flat everywhere. But not Jesus. He just keeps plugging. And he keeps teaching them the truth. And he keeps putting up with them to the point where he actually allows them to arrest him. He allows them to arrest him. And I say allows because Jesus could have called down incredible firepower from heaven. When they arrested him, Peter, we all know, we love Peter, he pulls out a sword and he's like, oh, no, you don't. And he starts swinging around, and he cuts a dude's ear off, and Jesus says, put that sword away. He goes, do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I love that verse. I can picture these angels literally standing there ready, ready to go into action at the word of their creator. One word from their maker and they would attack and destroy. All Jesus would need to say is, sick em. Which reminds me, there's this uh, thief, he goes into this guy's house, this robber, in the middle of the night. It's all dark. He's walking in there with his, his bag and he's taking stuff off the counter, putting it in the bag and putting it in the bag. All of a sudden he hears, Jesus is watching you. And he's like, stop. And he's like, ah. So he's looking around the room trying to see who said it. And he's looking, he can't see anything. All of a sudden again, Jesus is watching you. 
And he sees in the corner, he sees kind of a figure, and he looks closer, and he realizes that it's a parrot's cage. And the parrot is saying, Jesus is watching you. And so he's like, okay, whatever. He keeps putting stuff in his bag. All of a sudden, a big, huge Doberman pincher walks around the corner, and the parrot goes, sick him, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus could have said, sick him. And the angels would have come to the rescue and destroyed these ignorant fools. But he didn't. He let them arrest him, accuse him, condemn him, beat him, spit on him, and ultimately crucify him. And not one temper tantrum, never did he cuss them out, not one physical assault on these people. Instead, just, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Jesus displays immense amounts of long-suffering to his enemies. Now, the, the point I'm trying to make is that Jesus, the creator, shows up to his own creation, and his own creation doesn't understand him. His own creation rejects him. And not only rejects him, they assault him. They actually kill him, and Jesus takes it. He endures it. He patiently suffers through incredible suffering without retaliation. And that's incredible to me. And do you want to know why Jesus was like that? Do you want to know why? Because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. And the Father is a long-suffering God. Jesus perfectly imitated imitated his long-suffering father. Amen? Amen. Now, remember, we're to be imitating Jesus. So if Jesus was long-suffering, we need to be long-suffering as well. Over and over in the New Testament, we're, we're told to be patient with each other, to suffer long with each other, to be slow to anger with each other. And I'm convinced that if we took that seriously and truly lived that way, the world would see a different picture of Jesus than it does right now. As we saw, Jesus showed immense amount of long-suffering with his disciples, with his fellow town people, and even with his enemy. And yet, if you look at the church today, we can't even get along with each other. And because we can't get along, we break into different groups, and we have Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Baptists and Episcopalians and Assemblies of God and divisions even in those groups, and on and on it goes. We disagree, so we fight. And we fight so much that we split. And we're so split that we don't even interact with each other. Guys, the family of God is so dysfunctional, it's not even funny. Why does the world even want what we have when we can't get along? If we can't even suffer long with each other. And look around the room, third service. This room is filled with people who are pretty messed up. Look up on the stage. This stage has a person who is pretty messed up. We're a large group of messed up people. We all have issues. We have hang-ups. We have things that bother us, and we have things that bother other people. How many of you guys were here last week? Okay. How many of you guys last week noticed I had a ripped shirt? You guys are like, I don't know if I should admit it, but yeah, I saw it. And you're here today. You came back. Thank you. I was using it as an object lesson. <laughs> Actually, no, I wasn't. I got here first service. I'm like, oh, it's ripped. Eh, big deal. My wife was not as long-suffering as all of you guys were. She was not happy with that. 
Listen, the point is there are dozens of things we could fight and argue over, but we don't have to. We can choose to be long-suffering with each other. We can be patient with each other. When someone offends us, we can choose to suffer through it and love them in spite of it. Not get in a huff and leave. Here's the reality, why some we let each other down quite a bit. I know I have let several of you down in something that I've said or done or something I've not said or not done. But I tell you, and, and I'm sorry that that happens, I truly am, but I'll tell you there are two ways to handle that. And I'll tell you of two examples that have happened to me and how it's played out in literally two opposite ways. And I've learned from both. But I remember one time, this was many years ago, I was given a sermon. I believe it was a sermon series on Joseph. And uh, after a couple sermons, I got this email from this guy from the church. And it was probably one of the most scathing emails I've ever gotten. I mean, he ripped me up one side and down the other. And he just tore about the sermon. He disagreed with me. And it was, it was mean. I mean, a mean email. And so it, it took a few days to respond, just to, to settle down. And I responded. I says, hey, man. Actually, you have some really good points. But I'm going to say something. That next time when you want to talk about any of these things, do it in love. Can you just do it in love? Because when you do something in love, it's so much easier to just interact. But when you come down hard like this, it's just really hard. Well, that ticked them off even more. <laughs> and I got another just an even meaner email, and he left the church. That was one response. This man was not long-suffering whatsoever. Now, there was another couple from the church who they were going through a very difficult time. And for about a year, I forgot to check on them. I forgot to reach out to them. I, I didn't even see how they were doing. And I, it just slipped my mind and I let it go. And they came to me a year later and they came to my office, they set up an appointment and through tears, they, they told me how much I'd hurt them and how devastated they were and how lost they were and, and I was nowhere there to, to try to help them. And it, was, it hit me really hard how much I'd hurt them and what I had failed them so deeply. But you know what? In my office, through tears, they forgave me and they loved me and they're still here today. Talk about a complete opposite way to handle something like that. One was long-suffering, one was not. Guys, friendships can't last without long-suffering. Marriages can't make it without long-suffering. It's a key part of relationship. I mean, as a church family, without it, we would be lost. That is how the church family is able to experience unity. That is how a church family is able to make it and, and grow together in spite of our failures and differences. Something that I'm so grateful here at Wystom is the unity that we have. I really am. But understand that unity is, isn't easy. It takes work. It takes applying what God tells us to do. And long-suffering is part of that. Unity doesn't mean that we all agree and that we're all the same. Unity is not uniformity. Not even close. Unity means that we're able to be different and disagree and still love each other. Unity means that we're able to let each other down, offend one another, hurt one another, make mistakes with one another, and we can still forgive each other and love each other and have a relationship with each other. And it takes work. And long-suffering is part of that work. 
Long-suffering is necessary for that to happen. It's necessary for unity. So the next time in your life group when someone says something that offends you, show long-suffering. The next time someone doesn't do something for you that you were hoping they would, show long-suffering. As a church family, let's be a a group that shows long-suffering to each other. It is key for our unity here at Whitestone. It doesn't mean that we can't be honest with each other. We can. We can let the person know how they've hurt us and offended us, just like that couple did with me. Truth is still necessary, but we're still able to love each other in spite of our failures with each other. We must show long-suffering. I want, us to encourage, I want to encourage us to practice long-suffering at our workplaces with the, the hard people in our life. If Jesus could show long-suffering to the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, then you and I can do the same to the hard people in our life. And we all have them, don't we? We all have the hard people. There are people in our lives whose personalities just don't click with ours. And they kind of rub us the wrong way. I had a man like that in my life when I first became a pastor here, actually even earlier than that. I remember this guy's personality is so different than mine. I mean, we were like oil and water. We were two different people. But I remember I was asked to preach by the pastor. This was back when I was a carpenter, and I preached the sermon. And he called me that night, and he goes, hey, man, I'm just calling you. You preached this morning. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, "Uh, man, you were really raw. So I'm like, ah, thank you. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, ah, you just tell you don't have any training whatsoever. You were just very, very raw. I'm like, awesome. Well, thanks for calling, man. That really feels awesome. And he was just, he always would point out something whenever I did something wrong. And, and as you guys know, I'm not the most eloquent dude in the, in the world. And, and so I, I struggle with coming up with words and, and the way I speak English and stuff. And he would always point out where I didn't use English correctly. And so he was like, ah, it's not they, it's there, and then, and all that sort of stuff. And, and I remember one time, I'm like, hey, let's all turn to the book of Revelations. And he's like, it's not Revelations, it's Revelation. I'm like, oh. Oh, didn't know that. Okay. So, and he would just point out stuff like that. I remember I went to his office and, and we were talking and, and I was just, you know, I'm trying to plug into this guy and trying to connect with him. And, and uh, he was like, uh, we were talking and I, I was telling him this story. I said, you know, the other night I, was, I had this terrible headache. And so I went up to the bed to, and I laid down and I laid down for like three hours or something to try to get rid of it. And he goes, shoot, stop there for a second. Chickens lay eggs. And I was trying to act like, like I'm not an idiot. Like I'm, I was trying to act like I was tracking with him. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Finally, I said, dude, I, give, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? We weren't even talking about chickens. Why did you say that? He goes, chickens lay eggs. You lie down. You said you laid down. You lie down. Chickens lay eggs. Well, I got out of his office, and I was getting in my car, and in my mind, I'm like, why don't you just shut up? <laughs> I mean, I was ticked. And the Lord's is like, Luke, show long-suffering. Now, the beauty is, is this man, through our friendship, even though we were so different, I learned a lot from him. In fact, there's one thing that I've hung on to that he taught me. He, said, he says, Luke, when you say yes to something, you have to say no to something else. He goes, so always make sure that what you say yes to is more important than what you say no to. I've never forgotten that. 
The point is, when we train in long-suffering with people that are hard to be with, it builds our character. And it makes us more like Jesus. So let's train. Now, to date, I have never had anyone try to push me off a cliff. I've never had anyone try to stone me or kill me in any way for that matter. So if Jesus can exemplify such long-suffering in the face of such rejection and hatred, then apparently we can too. Because we're told to imitate Jesus. And so I know we can. And you know how I know that we can? Because we have the Spirit of God in us. Did you know that long-suffering is one of the fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Say it with me. Long-suffering. Long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. You see that? You know what that means? It means that if we walk according to the Spirit, if we walk step in step with the Spirit, long-suffering will happen naturally. You see, I think a lot of people think, well, if long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit, then I need to try really hard to be long-suffering. No, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of your hard work. It's a fruit of the Spirit. The way that we train for long-suffering is by training to walk to walk according to the Spirit, to listen to the Spirit, to be aware of his moving in our lives, to be aware of his guidance and his leadership and his directions, and and to be obedient to that. And I'll tell you guys, when we're obedient to that, long-suffering will be a fruit of that obedience. That's how we train for it. To train for long-suffering, you must train to walk according to the Spirit. That means you don't get to do what you want to do anymore. You do what the Spirit wants. And that's how Jesus was able to do what he did, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if Jesus could do it, we can do it. And when we do it, we look like Jesus. And when we look like Jesus, we look like the Father. And that, as we have been saying, is what we were created for in the first place to image God. Amen? Amen. Here's our homework. Get out your journal. And I want you to go through the circles of your kingdom. Okay, remember the circles? It starts with me and then our family and then money possessions and our workplace and then, you know, friend, community, outward it goes. But go through the circles of your kingdom to see which people in each circle you tend to struggle with being long-suffering to. And, and journal why that is the case. Talk, talk to the Spirit of God about that. Says, why is this person so hard for me? Why is this person so hard? Why, why don't I connect with this person? And then, this week, purposely spend time with those people and do it with the Spirit. Ask the Spirit to lead you and to guide you in your interactions with them. Now, if they offend you or hurt you, Ask the Spirit what to do. Ask the Spirit how to respond. And I encourage you to journal these interactions. Now, if this person's your wife, hide your journal so she doesn't see that. You know, just joking. But I encourage you, practice with the Spirit. Because remember, when we walk according to the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is going to be what? Long-suffering. So let's do it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that you are such a long-suffering God. Thank you for the example of Jesus. 
being a long-suffering human being while he walked this earth. God, we want to be just like him so that we can be just like you. So I pray that for every person in this room, every person watching, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would walk according to what you have to say and that we would show this world what Jesus looks like by being long-suffering. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Let it be so. Amen. If any of you guys would like to be prayed for, please come on up here. John would love to pray with you. And uh, otherwise, have a fantastic week. I love you guys. We'll see you next Sunday.